Hello. This is Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice. My name is Michael Kuehl. And I'm Roger Bell West. And we're here to talk about role-playing games, related topics and things like that. And what are we talking about this week, Roger? Starting off with some games that, well, we just didn't really like very much. If you can't say anything nice, say nothing at all, but we're breaking that rule. And going on to consider location and using your local area for role-playing games. Also, my continuing difficulties with my memory will be brought up yet again. And how to, how to get round them. And introduction to role-playing. How can it be done? Should it be done? How can it be done well? Can it be done profitably? There's no profit in role-playing. Yeah. Onward. This is a new segment which uh, we're going to call Hurled with Great Force. I uh, I know we promised earlier on that we would only say nice things about games in uh, in this uh, podcast of ours. Did we? I did. Oh, all right. All right. I, I made the promise for both of us. You, you may ignore it. But um, I did make, make rather negative um, indications about this one. And my colleague here has called upon me to justify them and get some airtime out of it. We're talking about Tales from the Floating Vagabond. Oh dear, oh dear me. Published by Avalon Hill in 1991. As part of its great campaign to um, show that they could do uh, role-playing games. Really, they could. What else did they publish? Well, early on they had Lords of Creation. Yes. That was one of theirs, which was, uh, yeah, all right, an interesting effort. And they had, by this time, published RuneQuest 3, cocked it up a bit, and then allowed the Glorantham enthusiasts to sort of rescue them out of it. <laughs> and uh, Tales from the Voting Vagabond is a humorous role-playing game. Now, it is easily to observed, it's, it's a common observation and the punchline of a famous joke, that dying is easy, but comedy is hard. And... Being critical about comedies is especially hard because you, um, well, it is very much a matter of taste, a matter of feeling, a matter of tone. But on all of those tests, I'm afraid Tales from the Floating Vagabond fails. I, I read out, this came up because we were talking about paranoia and how much it made me laugh and how much I enjoyed it. And I had read out the advertising blurb for Paranoia. Let me read out uh, the back copy blurb of, or bits of it, from Tales from the Floating Vagabond. Now you too can experience the role-playing game that drove this poor soul to the brink of madness. You too can thrill at the game which reaches new depths in high adventure and marvel as we reach new heights in low comedy. Yes, the game that takes every other role-playing experience and twists it beyond all hope of recognition into a game that is at once a bundle of weirdness, an experiment in ease of play and a great big hunk of humour, action and utter mayhem. The game of interdimensional excitement adventure whose only goal is gratuitous laughter. Get Tales from the Floating Vagabond can be yours today. Pick it up and buy it. It's cheap. And with that sort of lead-in, it would defy Chaplin, Groucho Marx or Ken Dodd to get a laugh out of the actual game. Um, the main thing about this game is that it is trying far, far too hard. The one good um, executive decision was to um, employ the chap who did the cover-up for first edition 
um, Paranoia. Jim Holloway. Jim Holloway to do the uh, uh, to do the illustrations. His external cover looks lush and, and sort of interesting, but the internal uh, cartoons and jokes are not. Did uh, you do the internal illustrations? I think it says so. The problem is well, uh, there are three problems with this for me: setting, system, and tone. <laughs> but apart from that, how did you like it? <laughs> All right, setting first. The floating vagabond is a is a bar floating in a interdimensional space, which is left over from the rest of creation, um, and a plot device. If you ever saw one, it has doorways which randomly open in other uh, dimensions in order to trap clientele if they upon need a drink. Um, part of the idea of this is that any player character you can think of from any, any other sort of game. Can, if if it's a world that has bars in it, can get sucked into this one. This sounds good, but it's actually a bit limp as a as a setting. It's everything is included, but nothing terribly specific is included. When it tries to expand the background into what the other interdimensional travellers are like, I'm afraid it it, it falls into. Well, let me put it this way: there is a group of space Nazis, and they are called. Space Nazis. And well, that's an easy thing to say, isn't it? It's an easy thing to write. But how do you make it funny? Uh, well, they don't. Um, in this particular case, they do note that they have snazzy uniforms and a love for Wagner, which... Oh, no. On the whole, no. And there's, there's a Lex Luthor-like billionaire um, who's part of an alliance called Evil, um, which is an acronym which I'm not going to bother to remember what it stands for. And there's a group of do-gooding heroes whose acronym is RIGHT. And, oh, it just gets sillier from there on. They are... What it's trying for is wacky. And wacky is something you can't get by trying too hard. Mm. It's not... And now I've drifted into the, into the tone of the thing. The tone of the thing feels to me like uh, a party at one of those American frat houses where people are, are having too much to drink and that makes them think they're funny. Um, I've never seen a role-playing session which involved having too much to drink or other mind-altering substances. A beer or so, maybe, but I've never played while actually smashed, not even the Baron Munchausen, which sort of encourages it. I've been in groups that met in pubs and would drink two or three or four pints over the course of the evening, but again, this is over an extended period and probably with food and not particularly getting drunk. Yeah, and I don't think that being smashed is going to make you find any of this funny. Being stoned might, but um, well, let's leave that to, to one side. We would not wish to be accused of, of encouraging illegal drug use upon this um, programme, and I'm not encouraging you in the least to uh, play Tales from the Floating Vagabond. Now, I, I am well known to have no sense of humour, so what I, what I looked at here was, was the system. And it's, for a lightweight, fast-moving game, it's kind of a slow and clunky system. It is, isn't it? And you, you, your basic mechanic, and it does at least have a basic universal resolution mechanic, because this was 1991, after all, yeah. um, you have a skill plus stat total, yeah. which is in the, generally in the range 2 to 10, and you're trying to roll that or less on a die that's based on difficulty. So for an easy task, that's a d4. 
for a harder task. That's a D30. Yes, they found a use of the D30. <laughs> this they may did, be the one appealing part of this game. They did not sell D30s. <laughs> um, <laughs> and wor worst case, it's a D100. Right. And I guess, I mean, the, the, the fashion was away from lots of different sorts of sizes of die, but, you know, fair enough. Um, it, it's trying to be abstracting. You, you, you've got the size scale of guns ranges from gun to don't point that at my planet. Mm -hmm. the, the, the scale of weapon ranges is from it includes things like pretty near and real far and see that dot, which is fine. But in the end, they, they just come down to what row on the table are you is, and that's a plus seven. Mm. It's trying to be universal, but it loses flavour by being universal because everything just comes down to that that basic system, which then takes a while to resolve. Yeah, the problem. What the problem is that that it includes a, a lot of information and kit and pre-worked out advantages, like for instance the tre trench coat you can pull anything out of, which is you know, a good shtick and and one that can can be funny in the right circumstances, and uh, and hearing your own personal theme tune playing in the in the uh, in the in the background music for the adventure is. Sort of fun, and I've seen it done better elsewhere. But the the thing is, to play humorous things, you you want, in my opinion, a system that's somewhere between tune and over the edge. <laughs> and both of those were available and had had been published. And it makes me wonder why the hell something like that wasn't gone for in this particular case. I found over the edge allows me player or GM-defined um, characteristics, a simple resolution and mechanic, and a way to make players uh, bring the flavour of their stats into the game. Um, and that's what you want. I think what, what we may have here is, is a... Uh, we, we've already established it's something of a difference in humour style, but I think one, one of the things that the game encourages mm -hmm. is humour by repetition. You, you've got your shtick of the trench code. Yeah. And that's the shtick you have for your character. That's that. That's that's, that is that is their gimmick. Yeah, you've got on the equipment list the switchblade battle axe. <laughs> yeah, which is funny once. It's not yeah. funny. It's not funny five times. It's not funny ten times. But it's on your equipment list. Yeah, I find the style of Feng Shui, um, which is is not a game without crunchy bits, is perfectly good for encouraging wackiness. Mm. Um, it it is a game with a multiversal, or at least. Trans time and time, time traveling and capable of creating new universes setting. And uh, people are encouraged to improvise around what their character can do, use their shticks, um, to maximum narrative effect and have fun. And I don't see the fun in this game. I am told, I read in Wikipedia that the author is planning on a second edition. Mm. And um, they're trying to probably get a Kickstarter. Well, I think that's his plan. Um, a triumph of optimism over experience would be be my. Well, it it did last long enough. They they brought out I think four or so supplements for it. I uh, yeah. Well, Avalon so... Hill had a certain level of optimism <laughs> in the role playing uh, arena. Th thank you for your initial comment. Yes, actually, dying is remarkably easy in this hmm. because the most. The most widely printed edition has a misprint that gave PCs about um, half the hit points they should have had, which meant they had less than your typical thug they were going up against. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, it does need mook rules. But even with that, it's actually quite easy to die, which is, seems to be an odd thing for a humorous game, because there isn't any easy way of coming back from it, like Paranoia, or two. Yeah, quite. I don't know. Paranoia has a lot of stuff in it. But I do find... But it does have a central humour thing of the tension between the players and the and the GM being manipulative and grossly unfair towards the players. Those bits work. Yeah, I, I, I think... Can't, I can't see why the funny is in this. You, do, you don't have things in the paranoia equipment list that are there to be funny themselves. Mm. You have things that are there to be props to build a routine on, like the, like the mirror with the Teela O'Malley photograph on the back. Mm. That's not funny in itself. That's something you do something with. It's the... Yeah. Funny is very difficult, especially in role-playing games. I would say not trying too hard is almost always the best way way to go. And we, we are, of course, British. This is true. So, so we is, tend, tend to err on the side of underplay. Yeah, but look at, look at, look at American wackiness. Um, look at something like Cary Grant in the... Oh, actually, he's British too. Um, <laughs> let's say Catherine Hepburn. Oh, she's East Coast American, and so almost British. Um, all right. Perhaps we should move on. Yeah, Let, let's um, just my, say my, my, my reaction to this is really: Tune was out, Paranoia was out. The, these are two fairly divergent styles of, of uh, funny game, and to me, I, I, would, I would need a reason not to play one or the other of those. Both of them coincidentally designed by Greg Kostikin. Hmm. And talking of Greg Kostikian... Now, we have talked about Greg's games quite a bit before, and I think it would be fair to say we both have a fair amount of time for most of what he's Hmm. done. But, in 1986, West End Games brought out The Price of Freedom. Uh Uh-huh. It, it, you have to remember, it was the 80s. It was the 80s. Uh, Reagan was in office and uh, so on. But, yeah, OK, so so basically this is a game where the commies are invading America and you must fight back. The The term Wolverines is not actually mentioned, <laughs> but... Ah, <laughs> oh, dear. Go on, go on. Well, it, it seems to me there, there are two separate problems here. I mean... Only two? <laughs> they're, they're fairly big ones. Um, go on. one, one is the setting. I mean... How you feel about the setting is another matter, and it it is kind of a grim fantasy, but it, it's explicitly putting your Soviet soldiers into the roles that a more conventional game would have orcs, mm-hmm. saying, "Yeah, you can kill these guys with no qualm, have some catharsis." That's quite explicitly in there. Mm-hmm. It's uh, yeah, we we we've read some other stuff by Kostikin. We we we've talked, in fact, about his uh, realistic after the Holocaust game, Nuclear Winter. So I, I'm reasonably confident that he was having at least a bit of a joke here, while at the same time wanting it to sell to the sort of people who believed in this stuff. Yeah. And the the example of play starts with three PCs, and by the end of it, one of them is dead. Um, one of the scenario seeds talks about protecting the last free congressman, who turns out to be a loudmouth, drunken, skirt-chasing bigot. Um, th- there's one that says, OK, your PCs can steal a couple of nuclear warheads. Now everybody wants to get, the- get them. <laughs> I don't think he was taking this entirely seriously. I think he was poking fun at the whole the Russians are coming thing. Yeah. How, how did they justify that? Um, I, mean, I mean, there is a lot of ocean 
and uh, and uh, how, what did they did, did alien space bats uh, turn out to be commies after all? No, the the basic idea is uh, you've got a uh, American president who agrees with uh, to sign sign a treaty um, not deploying SDI Star Wars anti missile satellites. Oh, good lord! Go on. The Soviets casually build their own system. Uh huh. And then say, hmm, okay, we're now nuke proof. You are ours, mate. What are you going to do about it? Um, the um, actual main U.S. Army is kind of elided from this. Okay, the the one that's got a lot of units in Europe and and, but no. Um, <laughs> okay, so Be- being fair, but that's not really what the game's about. That is background. Okay, and I'll come back to that. But basically, the, the situation is not the Russians are invading. The Ru- situation is that the Russians have invaded. Yeah. They are now taking over your town. Mm-hmm. And that, that is the scale and the scope of the game. It, the, it's, it's deliberately quite localised. Yeah. I, I should say that there are... This fantasy goes back to, the, back to the 50s. There were propaganda films against the commies showing it could happen here, going back that far. But for May I refer my learned friend to the invasion novel genre, which starts in the late 1800s in England. Yeah, true. <laughs> And uh, mostly involved the Germans at that point. The Riddle of the Sands is really quite good. In, mm. in fact, that's something worth mentioning. That the Riddle of the Sands is quite fun. It's, it's not a great story, yeah. but it's still quite readable, in spite of the idea that the Germans mapping out the sandbanks so so as to have a better chance of invading it, getting a fleet through to England, is kind of obsolete now. Mm. But it's still an interesting story. Um, this well isn't really being being fair. Um, I'm trying to be fair. That there is a surprising amount of material about the way the Soviet system worked, which I can't really see getting published in any sort of role-playing source book other than this, and it's actually not bad, uh-huh. and as as well researched as it could be at the time without actually going there. Um, it's implied that they expected to have some sort of meta plot going on. They don't. They never say this explicitly, hmm. but there's there's lots of stuff hinting about how things are going to, going to be getting worse as we get further and further into the Soviet takeover. But not a lot of detail. So that's probably something they intended to do later. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't actually have a problem running it, but I'm not enthusiastic about it. I don't think I'd find enthusiastic players. On the other hand, a thing you could do to, to salvage a surprising amount of the setting material, yeah. re- reframe it as an alien invasion story, which, if you'd written it in the 1980s, would have been a disguised parable about the commies anyway. Fair enough, yes. Uh, you know, V did all right. Yeah, well, V is. I I've ranted before, probably not on this podcast, about how the media, especially the American media, tends to move in step with the political zeitgeist. Hmm. I noticed um, when uh, Nixon went to China, there was suddenly a lot of friendly Chinese faces on 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 the TV programs, mm-hmm. uh, friendly Chinese communist faces showing they're just people like us, really. Um, when, oh, uh, four years before, it had been the even insidious Chinese who were trying to destroy the mental monk law, yep. whatever it was at the time. I spy, I seem to recall doing a lot of that stuff. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, it depresses me to think that the uh, that the role-playing industry was also moving in step with the media, but I, know, I suppose markets well, and, um, and ex- exploitation, they're, they're, Nonetheless, I was only joking as a 
Greg is a terrible defence. Well, he, ne he never actually said that. It was strongly implied, but... Um, uh, what, what implications do you see? Well, mo mostly the, the, the stuff in the text, as I was saying, about that uh, th this is not a game that can be taken particularly seriously just in terms of the examples you're getting, mm. the, the, that which will lead you into um, unhappy and dead PCs in fairly short order. Yeah. Um, we are the heroes. Yeah. We should be triumphing. But anyway, that, that, that's the setting, and, and I think if, if you turned into an alien invasion, it could more or less work, mm. because then, then, you could, then you have a reasonable excuse for the effortless actual initial invasion. Yeah. And humans know they have to be fighting it as a guerrilla force. But, okay, there's also the system. And I have to admit that this is basically a tactical war game, more yeah. than a role-playing game, which uh, not entirely unreasonable for some other games of that era were, too. You, you've got one introductory adventure and two what they call battle scenarios, which are basically just a set-up for a firefight. Yeah. Um, very simple skill system. It's D20, roll low. Mm -hmm. You've got stats... Uh, you've got physical but no mental stats, which is a little odd. You no, know, it's not. Not when your focus is on active doing things and not, say, infiltrating the the local communist substructure, pretending to be um, a, a communist sympathiser, gathering intelligence, or doing any of the interesting stuff that I'd actually like to do in a role-playing game. Yeah. Skills are not modified by stats anyway. They're on the same scale. You can modify stuff by task difficulty. There's a little bit of a bug because some of the difficulty modifiers involve adding or subtracting to the die roll, and some of them add, involve halving or doubling the die roll. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, all right. <laughs> but, but basically, there's, there's nothing really here that you wouldn't get from BRP, except the, the thing that does try to add flavour is what it calls tags. So you start with the, the thing that somebody is immediately going to notice about you when they see you is yeah. your physical tag. Uh, the thing that somebody's going to notice when when you start talking to him is your personality tag. It's just a general style, mm -hmm. try, trying to encourage a bit of role-playing. You've also got um, the, the standard character sheet includes uh, what it calls passion and interest, which are basically the, the things you care about. This doesn't have any game effect. It was, it was too early for that. But it does at least encourage you to have some sort of characterisation. Yeah, hang on a second. Step, step back a moment. Stats and skills are totally separate. Yeah. What are what are A stats and B skills for if you've got the other? Um, stats are things like strength and dexterity and uh, alertness, you know, no noticing stuff and okay. lifting stuff and fa fa fairly broad. But they don't specialise into? No. Okay. Uh, th there is no, for example, weightlifting skill. You would, you would boost your strength. Okay. Um, but skills are things like various sorts of gun combat and... Uh, mm -hmm. Sneaking about and so on. Okay, come on. It assumes a hex grid. It gives you several hex grids. Yeah. It came with counters. Uh, actually, even by the standards of war games, it's a pretty complex one. I mean, a white phosphorus grenade can't be thrown quite as far as a fragmentation grenade. Okay, this isn't going to flow, is it? Uh, e even I, who quite like simulation war games, think that's possibly going a little bit far. Um, you, you do have. Um, a hero point system, which was this was at, at the time when those were becoming mm. very popular anyway. So you, you don't have very many of them, and you, you only get them for doing heroic things, but you can spend them to do things like um, dodge your bullets or automatically yeah. hit with something. One thing where I think is innovative, it's the, the earliest game I have seen yeah. where the possibility is given of playing yourself as a PC. It... I'm not saying that's a good thing. No. <laughs> Uh, it, it has an interesting approach to this, which is basically you, you're not trying to um, actually stat yourself up in exact detail. 
you're saying, okay, take these relative things, you know, I, 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 am, I am the strong guy, he is the smart guy, and then scale them to a starting PC, so you, yeah. so you can eliminate at least some of the arguments there. Yeah, that, 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 they're called Avatar games, and yep. I think the first one is actually one of the superhero, okay. one of the early superhero ones. Uh, I tried, once, I tried uh, doing an Avatar game with my, my players, and afterwards one of my, my, my long-term players said to me gently, Michael, I play role-playing games to be somebody else. Yeah. And of course, um, there's also the problem that, uh, that you're going to get, you're never strength 15. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. Well, I don't think your IQ, IQ thirty. Either. The the uh, earliest example of this that I heard of um, from people I knew um, was a playtest game for one of the Doctor Who RPGs, where it started off with e each player playing themselves. Yeah. And after a bit, one player left left the group, so his character was taken over by somebody else. Mm. And then later on, he came back and had to play somebody different because that character was the other guy's PC by now, even though it was it's theoretically him. But yeah, apart from that, I, I don't see a great deal of appeal in it. Uh, no, me neither. It, well, it's 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 a pure wish fulfilment thing. This is you being heroic in a universe where heroism was an option to you. Yeah. Um, but honestly, um, if I were playing myself in any sort of adventurous universe, I'd be dead in a very short space of time. Yeah, ditto. Yeah. I, I might possibly be, be useful to one of the strong men, but probably not. So. Uh -huh. Yeah, so it's an interesting idea, and I, I'd still have respect for Greg. Yeah. But I don't think it works. I, apart from my queasiness about the, the political implications, the, the limited scope of it, and the, and the fact you can't, there's no depth to explore and no tactics other than find find weapons, kill commies. Yeah, and the the, the um that they were going planning to publish a lot of adventures for this, or so mm. they claimed. Uh, they they only actually produced one. Have uh, you ever read that? I I have read this. Now, what was it like? It's mostly tactical. It, it gets a little more sophisticated in that rather than just shooting bad guys. But one of the things you're aiming to do is it gets to a particular dam and blow it. Mm. Rather than take them on directly, yeah. I mean, that that actually makes some sense. I mean, this this is consistent with a guerrilla fight. Yeah, but the but it's still pretty much the same. Yeah, but the 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 tr the hard part about being a guerrilla is lying, hiding, blending in, blending in, not being noticed, and acquiring intelligence. Yeah, and that's really pretty much skated over. Yeah. I, I mean, there are there are game you can you can write a game. I'm not sure I enjoy it um, as as a member of the Maquis. Um, I'm not just the Star Trek one, but it would be it would be very hard and very dark and heroic in a different kind of way. Well, one of the um, bits of recommended reading is some um, stuff about the French Resistance during the Second World War. Yeah. And to be honest, if I were interested in that, I'd probably play a game involving the French Resistance in the Second World War. Hmm. But maybe that's just me. I wonder what effect our current political situation is having on mass-produced entertainment fantasies, including role-playing games. I suppose we're going to have to wait until we have some sort of uh, distance of time to be able to judge. Though, as I recall it, uh, my reaction to uh, uh, to the Price of Freedom coming out was 
pretty much the same then as it is now. <laughs> One can argue for some sort of zeitgeist because this is also the era when Twilight 2000 was coming out. Yeah. Which was rather more successful and, to be honest, rather better. Yeah, and the, the basic scenario, though unlikely in hindsight, is, still, is a lot more plausible. Yeah. Yeah. We pass. On to the next thing. This next segment is me keeping the promise I made in the tail end of our last episode uh, to Marcus Hubias, who is a re reader and contributor to Alarms and Excursions, the excellent role-playing appa which I contribute to. And he had noticed that um, in my uh, current uh, Laundry Files campaign, which I'm writing up in A&E, I had used uh, my local area, our local area, High Wycombe, as uh, part of the setting including it, and he asked me if we would chat for a moment about using your local area, the places you know, and where your play that your players know, as part of the setting of a game. We also had uh, feedback from John Dalman, yeah. uh, suggesting that the starting point for the Cyberpunk campaign that I'm working on would be to start at, at the street level in a single neighbourhood and look at what is going wrong there and what PCs can do about it, mm. which I think can tie into this quite effectively. Are you getting any further forward on that? I've got some slightly more coherent ideas. Well, that's always a, always a good thing. But, as I say, here in High Wycombe we are quite lucky. We have uh, not only uh, a site teeming with mystic significance, most of it foamy, in the Hellfire Caves, which was where uh, one of the earliest Sir Francis Dashwoods, we keep having Sir Francis Dashwoods, uh, baronets in High Wycombe, um, used to have uh, parties with a uh, a pseudo-satanic theme and fun. Uh, not only have that as a tourist attraction in West Wickham, we also have the Dashwood Mausoleum. Splendid structure. A splendid structure used as background in the Hammer film The Devil uh, the, To the Devil a Daughter. <laughs> and uh, also um, we have uh, we have a huge um, a, a private girls' school in the centre of the town, Wickham Abbey which has at it um, the remnants of a United States Navy um, listening base from the Cold War, <laughs> which has a, an underground bunker, which with the, um, with the, the removal of the, uh, of the listening post has been returned uh, to the school with, uh, who, on whose grounds it stands. And all of that... Oh, and we have a particularly gothic and crumbling uh, 19th century uh, municipal uh, graveyard. All of uh, which... Haven't we got the ruins of a castle somewhere? As well? uh, yeah, but it's not a particularly impressive set of ruins. It's just a <laughs> hill up. Yes, but it's obviously a site of mystic significance. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not the sort of place that you... you, you can, uh, it's overlooked. It's not an isolated castle where you could hold midnight rituals. Though the bits of the, the, the woods above the Rhine might might well qualify, mm. <laughs> be this as it may. Uh, and I used all those in uh, in my laundry campaign, campaign, not the castle, not the castle, not yet. But the thing I was going to say most importantly is that you do not need uh, an area of mystic significance around you. You can make campaign fodder out of anything. The lead-off point for me using High Wycombe is a uh, office block. Uh, in the centre centre of town, which has stood empty to my knowledge. 
looking with plaintive signs out, outside, begging people to come and, and, and let it for the past 15 years. Now, probably in the real world, there is some uh, tale of financial shenanigans and uh, laying things aside for tax uh, behind this. But I decided that that made an excellent place for the laundry to have its shielded headquarters for the southeastern group for negotiating with the ghouls, mm. who were busy um, digging um, their way in tunnels beneath High Wycombe. And when um, one of the roads nearby the next week collapsed um, with a sinkhole, <laughs> I did my best to work that into the game as well. Um, I am looking forward to things coming scrabbling out almost any day now. I didn't let my uh, imagination be confined to the things I know about, but that is something that, that, that is an advantage of doing it this way. You do at least have a clear mental picture of where things are, and your players will too. It's it, a help, helping visualisation. I did include the open mouth of the underground bunker, but I have not the foggiest idea what it actually looks like in real life, since I've never been up in that bit of the Abbey Ground. It does occur to me that um, one thing you can immediately get out out of this is extra complications. Hmm. I mean, consider the, the difference. I realise this isn't the current situation, but the difference in difficulty of mission between there is an old bunker that you have to get something out of, and there is an old bunker that you have to get something out of, and it is under an active girls' school and they can't be allowed to find out. Yeah. Um, I, I also included complications from the from the staff of the girls' school because uh, the entire membership of the local a laundry station had been slaughtered except for for one of the daughters who had been mind controlled and and so we weave it in visualization local local knowledge and be able to say to your players you know that office block that's by sainsbury's that has been empty for the past 15 years and then you too can look at them as they say no <laughs> so i encourage people to use their knowledge of particular areas to as an aid to visualization and as giving flavour to what to whatever you whatever you do. Yeah, I, I used to do this when I was living in London. I haven't really been living here long enough to do that yet. I've mm. been exploring enough. Well, in London, you're dead lucky because the place steams with. Stuff. Yeah, but there, there, there were two things, and one of them is, as you were saying, it helps in setting the scene. I mean, some people like to use images from films and so on, mm. but I like to use real life if I can. I could say the Barbican Estate or Tally House, and my players would know at least roughly what I was talking about and, and have their own set of associations with that, yeah. which were at least roughly consonant with what I was saying. But it also helped as a GM because I could um, fill in details that were not necessarily something I'd thought of needing in advance, yeah. as it might be, we're, we're, we're running along this street, we want to steal a car. Oh, there are actually cars parked along this street. Yeah. And Sure, some, some GMs would answer that in, in terms of what's dr most dramatic, but I could actually have the option of being realistic as well. Yeah. This is a street where nobody parks because the, there are traffic wardens coming along it all the time or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but also things like, where's the nearest police station? I, I was mostly running games like Cyberpunk and Dark Conspiracy set well, 10, 20, 30 years into the future. Yeah. So it didn't have to be completely the same. No. Um, um, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm perfectly willing to, to, to violate and to guess, but it, it helps with very, very similitude. What I think the key is, is the habit of looking at your reality, your immediate surrounds, with a viewpoint to making it fantastic, to making it full of adventure, and looking at it as if you're a stranger sometimes. What weird stuff could happen here? What weird stuff does this imply? Yeah. 
Well, uh, whether that's what's actually happening or what somebody wants people to think is happening, as a guy's to what's really going on. Yeah. But it's something people should do more of. It, you should resist the temptation. I've failed in this a few times to actually look things up. Um, because, <laughs> well, at least while, whilst you're, you're actively playing, um, a Google Earth is a terrible temptation. But it's, it's better as a research tool. Look, there is an island just there. I think I can use it. Oh, there is a building just there. I think I can use it. Uh, but don't don't allow it to break the flow. Improvise around your your core core knowledge. Therefore, let them see you sweat. I generally try not to have any sort of um, phone or tablet or laptop or whatever while I'm running a game. Anyway, well, Some, sometimes I end up firing one up and looking things up, but I try not to. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good di discipline too. And then it is surprisingly easy to retrofit things afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> we have that addressed your concerns, Market. In short, yeah, this is a great idea. Do, do it. It's good. Yeah. I, as I keep reminding people, am getting old. Uh, my uh, memory is getting poor. This also means that the length of my role-playing uh, history is getting longer, and some of it is still continuing. I um, have several games which I've been running in seasons, um, and sometimes the seasons are as much as ten years apart. Um, and I come back to things, and I find my players remember things better than I do, or at least more clearly than I do. I'm not saying they're remembering things correctly, because players often grab hold of the wrong end of the stick of something you've, you've told them. That may not be right, but they're sure about it. Yeah. And they say, but Michael, you told us back in, um, when we were doing this, that, or the other, um, that the Black King of the Elfwood soldier was um, on the tallest mountain. Did I? I think to myself, did I? I probably did. It sounds plausible. But um, I, I don't always write things up. Um instantly, which is one of the leading failures of this. And even if I'd started to write that particular conversation up as soon as I got back home, it occurs to me, I'm not sure I would have remembered to put it down, because it was a throwaway line, if I did in fact say it. And they're not misunderstanding the thing that I don't remember what it was I said. <laughs> so, what I'm talking about here is the problems of continuity and how to manage it. How to manage your vital capacity to make things up as you go along um, and combine it with making sense of the narrative in the long term. I have notes which I have scribbled down in too many places and in too disorganised a fashion. I'm getting better at this. But uh, one player came to me and said, um, you remember the, um, this was just recently, you remember uh, the ten-point disadvantage, uh, which you said I could have in return for having this unnamed advantage, uh, which would give me what I wanted. And what was it exactly? Was it enemies? Um, what, uh, what was it? That's consistent with what you've shown me now, but I couldn't remember. It's a terrible thing. And help. Help, Roger. <laughs> I need advice. I can help up to a, well. I can help into the future. I can't do anything about your present situation. Oh, right. The system of taking notes that I've been using is not so much the note taking itself; it's the getting the players to improve them afterwards. 
So I, mm. I, after the game, I, I will write, write up the session, Yeah. usually the next day, sometimes that, that evening if I get back early enough. Um, it produces a fair chunk of text, maybe a thousand words per hour of play. Yeah. It's, it's not your full novel of everything that's happened, but it's everything important that's happened. And, yeah. and that, that is fairly key, because the players then approve, or argue, Yeah. and we, we end up with a version that is what we all agree happened. Yeah. And if something's not in there, then it's up for grabs. The, this is the implicit contract, which I didn't mm. realise we were making until I'd been doing this for a while. <laughs> ah. But yeah, if it's in there, it's fixed. It's part of the campaign history. If it's not in there, yeah. then it we, we may remember something being mentioned about it, but it can be messed about with later. Okay, it does limit your going forward creative. No, it doesn't. Yeah, well, well, I want to say consistent anyway, so it doesn't limit me any more than being perfectly consistent with yeah. it. But things that haven't become apparent yet don't need to be in there. Yeah, the trouble is, I get home, I wind down. I don't want to think about role-playing games after having just <laughs> done them. Um, I should, I've got plenty of, of, of leisure and liberty, I should write things down the next day. It does take me an hour or two. Hmm. I would imagine um, this would be a good, a good thing. I I've made this complaint before, and I'm not sure I've got the energy to take up your perfectly good and reasonable solution. Have you tried recording the sessions? I have. Um, it's it's a way of getting notes that that, that I can then write up. It's yeah. absolutely useless for for using as a reference source because you can't find stuff in it. And mm. you'd spend so much time going through it and tagging. This is where we said this. This is where we said that. That yeah. you you would you would end up um, just making the notes, making the notes, and write, doing the write up anyway. I think. I know. Uh, the, 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 my problem is with the things that I have said that I may not remember the next morning. Um, the things that I have said that went according to the initial plan, I can normally reconstruct from my campaign diary from the notes I have going in. The things that have come up spontaneously in the moment, they may not last in my memory into uh, uh, as far as the next morning. Well, if they didn't make it into my notes during the session, yeah. and the players remember them and care about them, then the players will, will call me up on it when yeah, I finish right. the write-up. Yes, you're right. I'm and being... if they don't, then they are aware that that opportunity is gone. You're right. I'm being lazy. I am and being... Um, it does produce a hell of a lot of text. I mean, the, the World War II game write-up is the equivalent of two reasonably chunky novels. And uh, there's no way anybody is simply going to read that from the start. Have you thought about publishing? <laughs> it's not in a publishable form. It, it's character X does Y, character Z does A. Right. I mean, it might be interesting if you wanted to know what happened, but, but it doesn't have any of the little characterization details, mm -hmm. because that's for the players to handle for themselves. Well, the thing is, what I do produce, but I produce um, well after the event, are write-ups which are more reconstructions uh, for my alarms and excursion zine. These are literary explanations to other people, people who weren't there at the time, yep. about what we did and why it was fun. Yep. And sometimes they skip over details. Sometimes, well, quite often I'll combine them into one text to say, when I'm restarting a campaign, and here is the saga of what we did last time. Mm. And they'll agree or disagree and point out inconsistencies to me, the buggers. Mm. Um, but that's long after the event and doesn't help me with current problems. Yeah, this really isn't, what I'm doing really isn't, I think, intended for reading at full length. Its primary audience is 
first of all, the players who were there, including yeah. me as the GM, um, so so we can check and make sure we've got a consistent history. Mm-hmm. And then players who weren't there because they missed the session yeah. to work out roughly what's gone on so it can be up to speed when we start next time. Yeah. I think I'm going to have to try, um, at least um, when I'm gaming in places which are reasonable acoustics, getting out my iPad and recording the whole thing and seeing what I can do with an audio record yep. as I go. I have done that more or less coincidentally. In fact, when I'm doing gaming by voice over IP, yeah. uh, it really doesn't, doesn't add any complexity to make a recording of the channels as well. Mm-hmm. However, it's just very tedious to listen to. Yeah, I am. Uh, one of the reasons I'm reluctant to do this is that I hate the sound of my own voice as recording. I'm getting better. <laughs> but I do cringe at the sound of my own voice a bit. Most people do. Yep. One, one spin-off from this, which I've only done with the World War II games so far, well, this is with a couple of others, but mm. that's the main one, is an NPC list. Yeah, those are... Which is basically just, for, for me at least, it's just a list of every named NPC that the party has encountered, or in some cases heard about, and a sentence or two saying who they are and what they're doing. I am good enough to write down improvised NPCs um, as I go, and if they are statted out in the game system, especially in GURPS, then I've got them recorded on my computer and um, are there for later reference. Um, the, the, I didn't actually do this from the beginning. I, I had to reconstruct the first half of it from the campaign log. Hmm. Fortunately, the campaign log was just about able to give me the information I needed. It, it's now, uh, at the top, as we're recording this, there are 238 named NPCs in that campaign, some of them dead. 53 of them historical people. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I thought I was being over-ambitious. Oh, dear. Well, I wasn't setting out for this, and we've, we've been playing for several years. Sixty-something uh, yeah. reasonably long game sessions. Uh, and they've, they've just sort of accreted, and I, I think it was quite reasonable. One of the players asked me to put this list together, and I think it was a perfectly sensible thing to do. Yeah, and all, all right. I'm, all I, all I'm going to have in my notes is, is uh, Proudfoot, uh, Lecherous, Hobbit, um, uh, Scout, and Ranger. And that's enough to uh, to uh, to be going on with. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is um, in and around the village of X. Well, that's sort of been understood since the the village of X is where they uh, is where they're ba- based, and Proudfoot is one of their their leading low life citizens. Hmm. But it works. Uh, I I haven't had to do this with with places and things, though. I can see that you. Some campaigns you could, and if if you had your yeah. classic dungeon bash, you would definitely want to say what state did the room get left in mm. when the PCs retired last time, and maybe somebody's repaired it when they come back, and maybe they haven't. Yeah, I, my my dungeons tend to be smaller and one use. I, I, I I've never been able to agree with the underground ecology of of dungeons, where you know parties of cobbles are going around uh, putting up uh, chipboard in, and repairing things. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, my friend Hartley had in his original D and D dungeon partitions, which was a cobbled construction company. Keep out. <laughs> yeah, but um, you, you're talking about your Earth game. I would assume you're keeping track of things like this. This particular foreign settlement has yeah. has been visited and feels kind of like this. I'm, what, what, I'm not saying you're necessarily writing things down, but oh, you've, they, you've got they, some idea of who's where. I, I have a clear idea how they feel of, about of who, who's where. Who's visited where? Who, what they've heard about, and what they know about, and I've even um, started doing out the maps. Oh, I really must update those. 
of where they've been um, using campaign cartographer copying from the maps in um, uh, in Bainstorm. Yeah. Because most of the cities aren't there or are just initial settlements and towns at this stage of their history. Yeah, and I, I really ought to write down more coherently what the various political factions in the World War Two game are. The magical political factions, as opposed to, you know, the Nazis. Yeah. But there, there are at are least... Are magical Nazis? There are at least three different sorts of magical Nazis, all of whom despise each other. But no space Nazis. This information is not available at your security clearance. All right, we probably said I probably said all this before, but um, this is good advice nonetheless. My problem isn't getting any better. Well, you know what made the difference to me? Yeah. Getting a pencil that I really liked to write with. <laughs> Which is bizarre, I know. It so is. Some, for some people, it's, it's Evernote that causes this to happen, but just something that makes it pleasant to take notes. <sighs> my problem is... One of my problems is when I play in people's houses and not around tables. Around tables, I find it easier to take notes... But in people's houses and lounging around in lounges, I find it a bit more difficult. Yeah, you're going to show me a clipboard or something. What sir needs is one of these. Yeah, you're probably right. Not a mere clipboard. Oh, yes. Very neat. For those of us uh, going on audio only, what we have here is essentially a double-sided clipboard with a hinge in the middle. Got a pad on one side and stowage for pens and random garbage on the other. Mm. And this can then sit on one's lap comfortably. And one can scribble on it all day. Yeah, but I've already got... Oh, I should in front of, have in front of me my uh, hardback game journal in which I do the, the prep and scribble of notes. It's just... It's just developing a better style and being a better GM, and I'm an old dog. I must ne- learn some new tricks. Woof. Arf. And on. As you will have gathered, I am a fan of uh, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, um, Indeed. Uh, a podcast which we uh, refer to quite often, and I've been catching up after allowing myself to not listen to it for a while. And I noticed that Robin has a new project on which may best be described as Role Playing 101, basically a generic introduction to role playing games and how you do them and what they're about, which he's uh, putting together. I'm not sure if it's got past the proposal stage yet, or... I, I haven't heard any sort of call for funds, but it may not be getting funds from the public anyway. Well, I, I think he's pitching it to Pelagrain Press, um, which would be understandable. Two questions. Um, do you think this is a... I think it's a good idea. Um, do you think it's a commercial idea? And what do you think ought to be in it if we were do if we if we were to do something like that if you were to do something like that? Um, well, actually, let 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 me answer your assumption first. For for that subclass of good that means practicable, well, it includes practicable. Is this something that can usefully be done? Is it possible to have a single introduction to role playing games that covers a significant majority of what's out there? Given that role-playing games includes your indie games where you, you've got no no particular GM and, and you're very much encouraged to make stuff up as you go along, and it includes we're going to Dungeon Bash but we've got personalities, hmm. it, it seems to me that cu- trying to cover both of those in a, 
and everything in between in a way that's not wildly confusing would be a great challenge. And I, su I suspect that what they're going to have to do is restrict it to something more towards the middle. Yeah, well, th this is true. I think the more wargamey end of it would get mentioned purely as history. I think the indie and experimental side of it would get mentioned as you might also find this interesting. But I think there is a core people sitting around a table playing characters with a GM. I think that is a core thing which is, is a set that will include 90% of maybe 80 of role, of what, what we call role-playing games. Yeah, I, I think one would have to be careful about that. Is it commercial? Possibly, but the customers are not going to be end-users, actual role-players. No, well, well, apart from the else, actual role-players don't need it. Yeah. What, uh, what, 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 the way I would look at funding this, I think, yeah. would be, uh, bear in mind, I'm not trying to do this, I'm not a businessman and so on, but I would be, A, trying to make it fairly system agnostic, which I think they're trying to do anyway, yeah. and then trying to get a bunch of different game companies to contribute to the production costs. Mm -hmm on the basis that it will then generate sales for everybody. Yeah, it was occurring to me that you could write the general text and you could wrap it around or bundle it with the intro games that um, uh, that some companies produce. Something like GURPS Light and one of the introductory scenarios that Steve Jackson Games does would appear to be a logical companion to it. Yeah, um, it's not as common now, but it was certainly universal in the uh, games I was reading when I was younger, uh, that there would be a page or so of, here is what a session sounds like, here is what role-playing essentially is. Yeah, but they never went into enough detail, and they always tended to be dedicated to the particular feel of a particular game. And So perhaps what one might do is say, say to a games company, OK, you can license this, and then add your specific game flavour text on top of it. My problem with the commerciality of it is that it's a product that each ongoing gaming group would have an interest in, but just once. You, would, the you, would, you would buy this once, and, say, and if any newbies come along, you would say, here, read this, um, don't worry about the details, but see if it, you think it's fun. I'm not even sure of that. I think that if you've got an established group and a, a, somebody new is contemplating joining it, what they will do is hang around and listen and see what's going on. That's true, yeah. I think what, what it's more useful for is getting a an existing group of people who are not gamers already. Yeah. I'd say, right, th th this is... Or possibly um, somebody who's looking around for a thing to do but doesn't know any gamers yet, or doesn't know that gaming exists, say, yeah. here, this thing is out there. Yeah, to seed the future of the hobby is only partly going to be recruiting to established groups. It is going to be finding a new generation of nerds um, who are willing to uh, make the effort and, and start their own groups. And, and, I, and I'm not I, sure if that's... that's. I mean, that's the way one remembers things happening back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, maybe, but I'm not sure that happens anymore. I don't want to be curmudgeonly about this, but I, I want to say quite clearly that if you are the 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old that I was when I discovered role-playing, yeah. these days... You already have your smartphones and other other things of that sort. You can already do a significant fraction of the social engagement that you get from a role-playing game by playing a multiplayer game yeah. without having actually to physically meet people. Also true. 
And it seems to me that what, what, a, what a modern introduction to role-playing needs to do is not say the thing that everybody used to say, which is it's like a story where you can decide what happens, but rather say, okay, you, we assume you already know about your Skyrims, your World of Warcrafts, and things like that. Yeah. Here is how tabletop role-playing is different. Here, here is what we think is better about it. Yeah, that's also true. Because people no longer need to be introduced to the idea of it's like the stuff in the books, only you can decide it. They already have that. Yeah. So, okay. And you can actually interact with people. Mm. Uh, you, you're not limited to their pre-programmed responses. You can do things that the game designer hasn't thought of in advance. Stuff like that. Yeah. Robin deprecated, and I can see why he did, did it, uh, the idea of doing uh, video introductions um, on, online. Um, here's how to roleplay things. I, I did a brief survey of them after listening to that. There are a number of attempts at this. None of them desperately, awesomely good. A lot of them are just uh, a chap standing and talking to camera at you. There are some professionally produced things which look a bit better. I'm not quite sure how I would go about writing the script for something like that and saying, here, here's what it is and here, 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 here's how it's fun. I suspect what one would want to do minimal introduction and just give a lot of example, and re record a session of play, edit it very slightly. I, I would want to get I would I would want to hunt out a virgin, and um, <laughs> yes, as, as one does, <laughs> um, and and find and find someone who is genuinely uh, genuinely a newbie, so you get some sort of um, I don't understand what's going on here. Explain this to me. Authenticity into it. Hmm. Um, I yeah, that that's one of the things I I want to do, but. There, there, there will, of course, be another professionally produced series within the next couple of years. Because uh, of D&D &D 5th? No, because of Tabletop. Yeah, that's true. They, because their, their, series, their Kickstarter for Series 3 got enough funding that they, they've got the stretch goal to produce essentially the same sort of thing for a, a number of role-playing games. Ooh, have they? I wonder if they need actors. <laughs> Probably only ones who are already in California. Bum, bum. I would like to say bum at this moment in time. <laughs> okay, well, with a quick shout-out in the, in the direction of, um, of Tabletop and its producers and it, it, it's, its its mighty patron, we are slightly unworthy. <laughs> I think we'd better round that uh, topic up and leave you. And that was our sparkling June edition of... Uh, July. July? It's going out in July. Confusing me with time again. What am I, a time lord? That was our sparkling July edition of uh, Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice. Yes? Yes. I'm orientated as to place as well. And uh, we talked about various things. And if you're interested in the things we talked about, or you'd like to suggest some things which we could talk about in the future, uh, please contact us at... Podcast at tekeli.ly, or just leave a comment on the website. And we will... Try and get back to you and accommodate you. Have a not-too-sweltering summer.